0: All right, today I want to start with a story that I I heard uh, a few months back. It's from some amazing books and some really neat storytellers and podcasts. It's a story uh, that took place in many of Europe's countries during World War II and leading up to World War II. It was pretty well known that Hitler was an art fan, and after his initial invasion of Poland and Czechoslovakia... uh, Those in the art community knew that Hitler was gathering up the art And the artifacts and the special manuscripts and the national treasures of these countries that they were conquering, he was gathering them up and adding them to his own personal collection, but also a collection that he was trying to put together for the Third Reich. Hitler actually had a plan to build the biggest museum in the world in Austria, where he would house all this stolen art from around the world. And so um, these countries were getting ready for it. So in England, for example, when they thought that an invasion was imminent, they created certain task force, task force that would study museums and libraries and these places where the manuscripts were kept. And uh, they had a plan to gather all of these things up and to go and hide them. And you couldn't hide them in the city because they were worried that the cities were going to be bombed, which they certainly ended up being bombed. And so they would gather these priceless works, works of art and they would go and they would hide them in old mines, in country farmhouses, in barns throughout the country. And so many of you have seen movies that kind of capture this thing that was taking place in the middle of the war, Monuments Men and the Woman in Gold, how people were saving and recapturing all of this old stolen art. The Germans were committed. They literally had thousands of soldiers that were a part of certain regiments that were dedicated to moving in right behind the the first soldiers that were going in on these as they were invading certain countries. And they were racing to these museums and galleries to grab the art. And so they were committed. And the Germans actually had a little black book they called it for every country that they were going into. Here are the museums, here are the galleries, here are the libraries that you need to go to, and here are the things to get. So in, in France, this is my favorite story, uh, that Louvre was basically emptied out just a few months before the summer invasion of 1940. And a certain piece of art was one that was very elusive that Hitler was looking for the entire duration of the war. Hitler loved the Da Vinci's and there were 16 uh, Da Vinci's that were around at the time and he wanted the most famous of all of them. Do you know the name? The Mona Lisa. So the Mona Lisa was taken down off the wall of the Louvre and placed inside a custom crate. The crate was uh, covered on the inside with velvet just to protect this this masterpiece. But on the outside, it would look just like a crude um, old wooden box. And the only thing that identified that box as being the box that housed the Mona Lisa were three circles painted on top of the box. And this was something that the uh, leaders did is they, they would indicate the value of certain paintings with these circles. So one circle was somewhat valuable, two circles was more valuable, and three circles meant priceless, the most valuable, During the six-year period of time, the Mona Lisa was moved around five different times to different small castles in the French countryside where it was assigned certain people to watch over it and protect it up close and also from a distance. And there was one occasion where the Nazis were actually in the same building in the same room as the Mona Lisa, but they couldn't find it, and it survived. And we're so grateful that things like that did survive because so much art, has not been recovered billions that's not an exaggeration billions of dollars worth of art and fine masterpieces and and national treasures have not been found but I tell you that story because I want you just to think about all the all the steps that were taken the energy the, the risking their own lives to protect these special treasures this is just one story of thousands where people went to great lengths to protect those things that were priceless I tell you that story because we start a series today on the parables. It's called Parables, The Kingdom Revealed. And the parable we're going to look at today is the parable of a treasure that is found in a field, a priceless treasure where, like in the story from World War II, great links are taken to not just protect it, but to obtain it. And so we're gonna to get to that in a moment. I do wanna say a few things about the parables, and this may help you in your own personal time as you read the scriptures or as you listen to the series and for the next couple months. A parable is meant to be a story that illuminates something mysterious, okay? And so the kingdom of God was the subject Jesus taught on the most, and he taught about it in literal ways, but more often than not, when Jesus taught on the kingdom of God, he used metaphors, he used stories, and a parable is a little different than a fable because it includes you know, real people. It's, um, you know, often he'd use fishermen and farmers because that's what his listeners would have understood. If Jesus were to tell a parable today, he'd, he'd use different things. Like, so in Boulder, he'd use dog owners, um, kombucha makers, and uh, you know, engineers. That's what he would use around here. He'd use those metaphors. And I would be very confused, all right? <clears throat> I prefer the farming and fishing. But it's meant to connect, and it was meant to reveal something that can be mysterious. And so when you think about the kingdom of God, it's talked about in these ways that people have a hard time getting a hold of. So Jesus said, it's here, but it's not yet here. And what he was saying is there are certain benefits to the reign of Jesus that we get to enjoy presently, and there are certain benefits to the reign of Jesus, which is the kingdom of God, that we will enjoy someday when it arrives in its fullness, I like to describe the kingdom of God as God's plan to renew, to make all things new. God does not abandon his creation, he does not abandon people like us, does not abandon uh, the natural world around us, does not abandon art and beauty, but he renews it and he uh, restores it. And so the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is this priceless, amazing thing that, that, that we get to enjoy. And so to help people understand and to be captured by the vision of the kingdom, Jesus told stories. Because he was trying to get from the left part of someone's brain to the right part of their brain and grab their heart. And isn't that what stories do? Pulls us in. So Jesus was a master at this. I, here's an example of the power of a story and the power of a parable. And so I just want you to think about this as we're trying to understand its meaning. But I'm telling you this because I want us drawn into these stories, okay? So here's the power of a story. We have four little boys at home. And actually, they're not so little anymore. They're gigantic. Uh, but over the years, we've tried to teach our boys to tell the truth. And we've tried to teach them of the benefits of being a trustworthy person, and we spend time talking about what it's like to not be a trustworthy person. You know, you're, it's going to be hard to have relationships. People aren't going to invite you into opportunities. There's just a you know, there's a big price to pay. And so somewhere along the way, besides just telling our boys, you better never lie to us, I can promise you one of us told the boys the story of the boy who cried wolf. Right? It's a parable. Not told by Jesus, but it makes the point. Every little boy can picture being chased by a wolf and needing some help and wanting help to be there. And so Jesus is doing this with each of these parables, including the one we're looking at today. Let me also mention this. Here at Cornerstone, we intentionally make connections between the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament and the Old Testament. I could make a case that every parable Jesus taught is in reference to some Old New Te- Old Testament story. okay. So not only is he telling them a story in a familiar way to help them understand something about the kingdom now, he's connecting it back to a story that they already had meaning and appreciation from his listeners. So the most famous of those examples is a famous parable called the prodigal son. Many of you know it. There's two brothers and they have a father. The youngest son is rebellious. He runs away. He squanders his father's inheritance. He comes back, but the father is gracious. And the father in the story is meant to illustrate God. And he receives the son, and and he just lavishes love and forgiveness upon him. But there's an older brother in the story who is angry and judgmental. And both of the brothers in the story represent us. Well, Jesus told that story. What does that story connect to? But the story of Jacob and Esau. Remember Esau, the older brother who forgave his son. Jesus told the story that way to say, you're not like Esau. You're like this brother. So he's trying to get to our hearts when he tells these stories, these parables. And so saying that, let's go to Matthew chapter 13. This parable is just in one verse, verse 44. And here's what I want you to listen for. I want you to listen how the kingdom of God is meant to be treasured. The kingdom of God is a promise. And the kingdom of God is meant to be a priority in our life right now in this moment. So Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like this, or is like a treasure hidden in a field, When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, went out and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. So really simple. You keep reading, you see that there's a similar parable that follows this, a man that found a great pearl, there's a parable that follows about some fishermen who catch a great number of fish, but today we want to focus in on this idea of the field and the treasure. So here are a few obvious just observations that we can make in just first reading. This, king, or this parable certainly is meant to illustrate the value of the kingdom. It's likened to a great treasure that is worth any sacrifice. And so the value of the kingdom is meant to be something that we wonder about. It's immeasurable. It's the only system in the world that leads to human flourishing, at least for all people. It's the only one that has the opportunity to allow every person that's ever lived to flourish. It's the only righteous kingdom. It's good, true, loving in every way. It's the only kingdom that heals rather than harms. It's a kingdom that unifies rather than divides. It's a kingdom of power, yet the power in this kingdom is not used to crush or oppress or to win or dominate, but the power in this kingdom is used to lift others up and to set them free. And the thing above all other things that separates this kingdom and gives it its value and separates it from other kingdoms is its king. Jesus right now literally sits on a throne. It's not, that's not a metaphor. He is on a throne in heaven, the right hand of the Father. There is a metaphorical chair, by the way, next to him that's the seat that we sit in, at the right hand. And that's a picture of our standing with him, but he sits on a throne. And Jesus is different. He's the only righteous king that has ever lived. He's the wisest, bravest, most loving, most gracious, courageous person that has ever lived. And he sits on a throne and calls himself a king. And we're told in the scriptures just this this idea uh, of the kingdom of God is so important to God that it's the thing that Jesus taught on the most, but Jesus is referred to, especially in the end, as a conquering king. He returns that way. So he came in a humble way. It'll be the same humble Jesus, but he returns as a conquering king when he comes back someday. The kingdom of God is an immeasurable treasure that continually surprises us of its value. One of the surprising benefits, let me use that word a couple times here, uh, that I've enjoyed being a pastor now for 20 years, is you get to journey with people through different seasons of, of their faith journey. And so at the beginning, people have this fresh faith and then that kind of goes away and they have to have a more sustaining, mature faith over time. But when you hear people talk about the surprises they continually have with God, it's neat to hear it. Like there's always something new. There's always something more. There's surprises the way God can connect with us, speak to us how close we can feel to him, the purpose that he can give us, the way he provides, the way he leads. Those are all surprises. The kingdom of God is this great treasure that continues to surprise us with its value. Just a couple years ago, there was a very, very lucky man who went to an estate sale near Boston. And he bought a painting that day for $30 of a famous turned out to be a famous German painter from the 1500s. Now, at the time, he wasn't sure that the, the painting was from this artist, but he saw the initials down below and he thought knew enough about this artist that he thought to himself, this painting certainly could be worth more than $30. Well, it was. That painting of a mother holding a small child has been valued at over $50 million by certain museums in London. And one of those museums is trying to get a deal for that and not pay $50 million, but get the painting. What a surprise, right? (laughs) We're all gonna be running around estate sales just (laughs) buying every... There's enough of those stories that just get us excited and we think we're not wasting our time buying more junk, but that's exactly what we're doing. The kingdom of God is full of surprises. It's immeasurable in its value. Now, that is why... It's so so easy to understand why this man in the story makes incredible sacrifices, and I want you to see the connection. When something is this valuable, every sacrifice, every step, every loss, every cost that goes towards obtaining that treasure is worth it. Everything is justified that this man does in the story. Everything he gives up seems small and meaningless. There's no price that a person would not be willing to pay if they understood its value. In other words... You have nothing if you don't have this. And everything is worth losing to get it. And so the man in the story makes an incredible investment in what stands there right in front of him. You see that? In that moment, he goes and he sells everything he has to obtain it. And I think he would say something like, if I don't have this, I don't have anything at all. Now, those are the two obvious observations. Here's what's less obvious to us. That is the man's motivation and his emotion. Look what it says. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. In his joy. I love this about Jesus. I love this. I love that Jesus wants to give us joy. And the reason that's so special is not just because, oh, he's nice. But that's the thing every one of us ultimately is after. We all want joy. Joy is that settled contentment and peace that God can give you. It's passion and purpose. It's knowing that you're loved by someone else and secure in who you are. It's like that combination of all those things produces joy and joy is resilient. Happiness is not, but joy is. In his joy, he went and sold all that he has. You know, Jesus is leading us somewhere. The arc of history as described in the Bible is not just us making laps. Most religions just describe uh, the movement as, as just circles. You just keep coming back to the same problems or people go through the same things. But not so with Jesus. He is leading us somewhere. The kingdom of God is the goal. The world will arrive there someday. He will finish the project of restoration. And when that is done, we will experience Endless, surprising joy. And God will be honored the way that he should be because he's that unique of a king. So he is leading us to joy, but he's wanting us to connect to joy in the moment. Now, a message that's been really important for us to communicate here at Cornerstone is the message of joy and where it comes from. We really care about communicating that right now because the world lies to us about where you find joy. But joy is found in simple places. It's really just found with in meaningful relationships. So a baby experiences joy. We can measure it in their brain now when they look up and they find the face of their mother. Or when you shake someone's hand on Sunday, joy is exchanged. Knowing that someone's glad to see you or that you belong to someone or to some place. Those are the things that produce joy. I think Jesus is, is saying something mysterious here. You know what the treasure of the kingdom is? It's not just its benefits. It's him. The man has found the real treasure, which is the king. Not just the benefits that come with the king, but the king himself. The one who gives joy, who creates joy, who shares joy, who produces joy in us. And here's one of the struggles of the modern world. We are so programmed to think that joy comes from other things. The affirmation of certain people, having enough free time, feeling special enough. And we look all these different places, but if we simply look to him, he would give us the things that we need. And even though we might be struggling, we might be sad, we might be grieving, joy could still live, still be a part of our life. So it's important to see that there's huge value. The sacrifice was, um, was measured, but it certainly was appropriate. But the man goes and does all of this out of his joy, the kingdom produces joy. Now, I want to make a connection, like I said earlier, to an Old Testament story that would have brought extra meaning to this. Okay? So there's another story in the book of Jeremiah. It occurs in Jeremiah chapter 32 where someone else is told to buy a field. And they go and do it. So Jeremiah, unfortunately, had the job of being a prophet of God during a really terrible time. And so that means that it's his job to talk to people who don't want to listen and talk to power who doesn't appreciate him being there. And his message was usually a message of warning. If you don't stop, if you don't change direction, something terrible is going to happen. Well, Jeremiah, along with the people, had to live through that terrible thing that took place. Babylon, one of those great big armies... There's a series of them from the east that invade Israel at different times in Israel's history. Well, they've now invaded. They've conquered the entire kingdom except this one small holdout in the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, and that holdout is the city of Jerusalem. God had already shared with Jeremiah that he was gonna let the city fall and that the death and destruction would be terrible, that people would be hauled off to live as political slaves in Babylon if they survived the journey through the desert. I mean, the whole thing is just awful. He's already told Jeremiah all of these things are going to happen. He told told Jeremiah, you're going to have to live through the whole thing. You're going to live with the devastation. And right before this thing takes place, as Jeremiah can hear the the beating of the enemy drums. He could have climbed up on the ramparts of the city walls and looked out and, and seen the, see, he could have seen the army in all four directions. God tells Jeremiah to buy a piece of property that the army actually occupied at that moment. Nuts. <laughs> One dollar is not a justified amount of money to buy a piece of land that's that worthless. Hopeless. So you get to verse eight, the Lord is speaking to Jeremiah even how he's, the details of how he's going to buy this. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anatoth, Anatoth is the hometown of Jeremiah when he was a boy, in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew it was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anatoth for my cousin Hanamel, And weighed it out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver of the skills. I love that the cousin comes to him. The cousin's trying to get rid of this this worthless land because he sees what's about to happen. No one can even use it, there's an army on it. And the only person in his family crazy enough to buy the land is a prophet. That's what prophets are like. They are awesome, but they are wild. See, Jeremiah had heard something from the Lord. He buys this worthless piece of land. A piece of land that he would maybe never walk on, he could never grow anything on. In a country that was about to be just crushed, a third of the city is killed, a third of the city is hauled off, the temple is destroyed, the walls crumble, the houses are destroyed, the fields are burned. This field's probably being trampled by the hooves of horses and, and, and the wheels of these wagons and these chariots and, and under the, the, the feet of thousands of foot soldiers. It's worthless land. So the question is, why did God tell him to buy the land? Here's another question. Why did he never let Jeremiah enjoy the land that he bought? See, Jeremiah is given to us as this amazing example of how you put trust in God's Promises. So the first story is a man who's purchasing a field to receive the benefits that it has in that moment. This story is a man who purchases a field because he has faith in the promises of God that are yet to come. So imagine this: Jesus' friends, his disciples, these, these people that are part of the crowd. They're sitting there listening to Jesus talk about the treasure in the field, and they probably looked at each other and said, I know someone else that bought a field. It would have been really convenient if Jesus would have taught this parable standing in front of that field that Jeremiah bought, because it could be identified at that time. I looked. He wasn't there. That would have been, made it really great for this sermon. Thank you, Jesus, for not giving me that detail. But I know that there are people standing around saying, you know who else bought a field? Jeremiah's purchase of that field had always stood as like this incredible example of this is what faith looks like. In the midst of hopelessness, in the midst of despair and destruction, but even before it's done getting worse, you hope in God, you trust in God, you invest in His kingdom, you say yes. So Jesus tells this story. It's no coincidence that He connects these details so that people might begin to think, wow is this like what happened to Jeremiah? Eugene Peterson says this about the purchase of that field in one of my very favorite books called Running with Horses. It's on the book of Jeremiah. He said this, at that moment, Jeremiah bought a field on which he would never plant an olive tree, prune a grapevine, or build a house. A field that in all probability he would never see, ever see. Why did he do it? For the most practical of reasons, he did it because he was convinced that the troubles everyone was experiencing were at that very moment being used by God in what would eventually turn out to be the salvation of the land. I mean, that's vision to know that God is moving things in that direction towards renewal, resurrection. It's amazing. Let me prove it to you that I think Jesus was making a connection here between these two stories. So, if we go back to Matthew 13, so if you have your Bible, you can follow along. Um, I'll just tell you what follows after this verse 44, where he talks about the treasure in the field. He talks about the pearl, the man who finds the pearl. Then he talks about the fishermen, and there's some dividing up, and 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 there's some um, there's some language of judgment that God will judge the world, which is what a good righteous king does. He ends what's evil. But then he gets to verse 51 and he says this have you understood all of these things and he makes another reference to a treasure here so the disciples say yes but i think jesus knows that they don't understand and i'll admit this passage can be hard to understand so i'm just going to give you my best interpretation have you understood all these things jesus asked yes they replied and he said to them therefore every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. This is where the urgency and the priority of the kingdom needs to be communicated. Jesus is saying, yeah, it's like Jeremiah. Be, living in the kingdom is living with hope in a future promise. That's the old treasure, that's part of faith that God will continue to do, or God will do in the future. But you know what else is a part of faith? What God is doing right now. That's the new treasure. The treasure in the field that's right in front of you in this moment. N.T. Wright says this about the urgency and the priority of the kingdom. Jesus and and his kingdom messages are not meant to, or they are meant to startle us. Let me start again make the font a little bigger. Jesus and his kingdom messages are meant to startle us. There's a decision to be made and to be made urgently. The gospel of the kingdom isn't a pleasant religious idea that you might like to explore from time to time when you have an hour or two to spare. It isn't like an attractive object in a museum that you might visit and look at admirably the next time you're in the district. It's like a famous hoard of treasure Yours for the taking if you sell everything else to buy it, to buy that field where the treasure is hidden. So this gets my mind thinking about other things Jesus said. Lose your life for my sake and you will gain it. Or, or how Jesus shows up in the, in the book of Mark. So the first words Mark records, Jesus saying, so they're not the first words Jesus said, They're the first words Mark chooses to write are urgent words. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. There is old treasure. Jesus doesn't throw out the old treasure. He builds upon it and there is new treasure. You have the promises of God and you have the present reality, the power of God, the renewal of God right now in this moment. I mean, I wish we could have been there. I wish we had the Jewish worldview that they would have thought of. I wish they would have had years and years of the telling of the Jeremiah story to just illuminate this one verse that Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden, hidden in a field that a man went and bought. In his joy, he purchased it. See, there's a message here, and that is that the kingdom is worth it, it's worth any sacrifice. The kingdom is something that you can count on that you're gonna have to do the hard thing of continuing to have active faith to keep trusting that God will fulfill his promises. That's hard to do. But it's a kingdom that we urgently prioritize in our life right now and we get to enjoy in the moment. Now saying that, I want to take us to our challenge, okay? So this entire message is all for this moment, kingdom assignment number two. So I want you to grab your card and um, I'm going to make one last connection here. So um, take you to a passage where Kingdom Assignment 2 comes from, but let me take you back. So back in January, we started something here called Kingdom Assignment, and I introduced Kingdom Assignment 1. It was a challenge that came from the parable of the, the faithful servants who took some of the master's wealth, and they went and they invested it. Two of them invested it, and they were faithful. And so in January, we handed out 100 dollars bills. Do you remember that? handed out about $10,000, and it's amazing that you guys took just about 100 people, took $10,000, and turned it into over $100,000. And part of the condition of that is that you took the money and you gave it to people in need in our community. We had nothing to do with it. It didn't come back here. You just, you know, fire victims, people who were hopeless. I, 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 could, I wish I had time to tell you about all of the amazing things you did during that time. It was special. I mean, some of those stories are captured in some videos that we have on our website about it. Well, kingdom assignment, too, is a little different. It's meant to, again, put the kingdom of God right in front of us as urgent, okay? And so it comes from one of the worst passages in all the Bible, in my opinion. And you'll know why in a moment, okay? No one likes this passage. But I want to explain it to you because it's not quite so bad, all right? It's not quite so challenging, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Here's a conversation Jesus is having with a young man. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked asked him, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you are to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not... Give false testimony, honor your father and mother. So he's naming some of the Ten Commandments. Then he names the greatest commandment of all of them and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Now that's an amazing question. What do I still lack? It's it's getting out like old treasure, new treasure kind of stuff. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all of your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So let me put you at ease. I'm not asking you to sell all your possessions. That is not happening. I mean, football season is coming up. We need TVs and jerseys. Jesus is saying the same thing he said in the parable, but he's getting at it a different way. You can have everything, but if you don't have this one thing, you don't have anything, okay? Have you ever noticed when you read the gospels that Jesus said different things to different people, but in every moment he's trying to, he's trying to inspire and birth faith in them, because faith is how we're connected to God. Faith is how we're saved. But he talks to them in different ways, to, specifically like a different, a unique kind of faith for them. So for example, the woman at the well, Jesus talks about marriage and men and sex. And to Nicodemus, he talks to him about his good moral standing and his religious uh, fervor. But to the rich young ruler, he talks to him about his wealth. Why does he do that? And this is how Jesus is really, really dangerous. He sees past the externals in our life and the pretending and the masks, and he knows what's in our heart. And he wants our heart, he wants all of it. And whatever it is that's standing between us and him, even if it's something good like marriage, or sex, or money, or religious fervor, he will say, give it up. Because if you don't have me, you don't have anything. It's really sad that This rich young ruler doesn't understand this message. Maybe he was with Jesus when he heard him tell the story of the, 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 the treasure in the field. It says he leaves in his sadness, the opposite of joy. But what Jesus was really trying to give him was joy. See, Jesus just didn't want his money. He didn't. He doesn't need it. He wanted his heart. Same thing with the woman at the well. Same thing with Nicodemus. Same thing with you and me. He wants our heart. So what this means is that this isn't a command that he's asking every person everywhere to obey. In fact, he'll probably never ask you to do this, although he might, we don't know. He's dangerous that way. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna take something creative from this parable about the urgency and the sacrifice and the value of the kingdom and wanting to give him our heart and we're going to make another investment in our community, And so coming out of these parables and the story of Jeremiah that I shared earlier and out of this this message that Jesus shared with the rich young ruler comes kingdom assignment too. And this is what it is. We're going to challenge you and what I'm looking for, I'm looking for 300 volunteers. So last time we had 100, but we're looking for 300 volunteers who will sell something that's of $100 in value. And then what we're going to do is we're going to hold on to that money and later this summer we're going to come together and we're going to put it together and we're going to care for people in need in our community. Okay? So in Jesus' day, just physical poverty was everywhere. We do have that in our community. But the money that we raise is going to be an extra investment into I think just the poverty of our culture today which has to do with mental health. There are so many people devastated from anxiety and depression, um, as a church, we've been increasing our efforts to help in those areas. I think the, the amount of money we're investing right now is between thirty and $40,000. If 30 people say yes to this, we get to double our efforts. I can also tell you, this is about something we've been thinking about but for the next three years. As a church, we're going to continue to grow um, our ministry, our network, our ability to care for people. And so this is going to look like new hires More counselors, more scholarship money to help people go to counseling, more connection and networking to help people find the right counselors and care that they need. And so there are certain things that are coming down the road, but this is a way that we get to invest in something that's taking place in our community right now. Now I want you to think about selling something. This is actually not that hard. We're the only culture, I think in the history of the world, it has garages full of crap so we can't park our cars in them how many of you have a giant basement just full of crap that you never even use yeah i got a lot of it it's a huge basement and if you don't have a basement you know you have this american invention called a storage unit i mean think how insane we are we pay money to store stuff that we never look at or use if you think about it, it's not really that big of a sacrifice to say, you know, I'm going to simplify my life and I'm, which is also a gift. We could have a whole message about simplifying our life and having less clutter in all of different areas. Um, But you choose one thing. But here's what's dangerous, okay? It's easy to choose the bike or the couch. But I'm asking you to pray and ask God, 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 give me one thing that's standing in the way. Okay? One thing that's standing in the way maybe not just between you and him but health so i can tell you 20 years ago when i prayed this prayer god had the bad idea of telling me to sell my xbox i was newly married xboxes aren't very helpful when you're married i asked him again i said are you sure like can i sell uh, i don't know can i sell my bed I need the TV and the Xbox. But I've heard of people selling cars, like thousands of dollars worth of liquor, something that just represented this like, you know, this overdraw towards security. See, what we're getting at is we're wanting to ask God, God, show me what's standing in the way, Tim Keller calls them idols, and this is the way you identify an idol, that it's something that you love, trust, and serve more than God. So God, what is it that's in the way? Maybe he's not gonna tell you anything because you're doing better than I am right now. But you can still simplify your life. You can join others and do something meaningful. And we can make a contribution to our community in an area that's really needed. Let me mention a few things about mental health right now in our community. We're told you can find this stuff. It's really available to just about anyone. But one in five Americans just this year will experience mental health issues and need resourcing and support. One in five. One in five children, we're told, will need resourcing. In fact, many of us think that that number is bigger from what we're hearing from the schools. One out of every 25 Americans this year will deal with some uh, serious debilitating level of mental health, meaning that they can't, they can't operate on their own. This happens in our church, like, literally on a weekly and monthly basis. And what a good place to struggle, by the way. Like, we want you to know this is a place to struggle. It's one of the safest places to struggle. We want you to struggle here. But we want to experience God's shalom. Boston College did some research, uh, just the effects of the lockdowns. And in the first six months of the pandemic, anxiety increased 50% in the country, depression increased 44%. That's just in the first six months. In the demographic of, of people between 18 and 29, the numbers are higher. The increase was 65%, or 65% increase for anxiety in, in people that, in that age group, and 61% in that age group experienced an increase in depression. It's actually sad. What we did was devastating to people. I mean, we understand in some levels why we did what we did because we're protecting people physically, but it's devastating. So we want to address this poverty. And by the way, we're all poor in spirit. It's one of those blessed things, right? When we realize I can't fix myself on my own. I'm not enough on my own. I need him. So again, sell something of $100. We're going to come back this summer. We'll give you details of how to do that in the months to come. And then as a church, we want to double our efforts just this year and how we're helping care for the needs of our community. So if you grab your card, I know some of you have already done it, but you, there are two QR codes on the back. You scan the first one. By the way, if you don't know what a QR code is, you point your, turn your phone on you point it at it. I was taught this a couple years ago by our staff. They laughed at me. It'll take you to our website where you can find out about Kingdom Assignment 1. There'll be more details about Kingdom Assignment 2 there. Actually, that's the bottom one. The top one is what I'd like for you to do today. So pull your phone out. And if you're one of those people that's ready to say yes, and I would love for you to be a part of this. I want you to scan that top code. If you're watching at home or you don't have a smartphone, you can text the number behind me with that, that keyword phrase, and uh, you'll get connected into our, our texting queue. All we're going to do is we're just going to send you some emails encouraging you. We're going to let you know how we're going to bring our money together. We're going to give you more details about the ways we're going to invest that money in the months to come. But if 300 of us do it in a church that in last week we were back to pre-COVID Easter numbers, and there's 1,000 adults here. 300 of us do it. We get to help. But it's not just about helping. It's about letting God do something in your heart. So again, take the time, listen to the Lord, take the weeks to come and say, God, what is it that I could sell that's standing in the way? All right, I wanna give us just a moment. Let's go to the quiet place of prayer. Let me just remind you of a few things. The kingdom's a treasure. The king's the greatest treasure. If you don't know him, There's never been a day of your life that he has not walked with you, looked at you and smiled. You belong to him. And the kingdom is in front of you and he's not asking you to give up everything, he's just saying, have some faith. Join your heart to mine, he's saying, and he will journey with you. Jesus is gracious and generous that way. And then he'll continue to surprise you at how valuable he is. But this is what Jesus will also do. He'll ask for all of your heart. And so for the majority of us in the room that have said yes to Jesus, I just, just want us to hear his voice saying, I want more of you. Father, faith right now feels like risk. Give us faith like Jeremiah to trust in a promise even when all seems lost. Give us the urgency of the man who bought the field to get the kingdom. Give us that urgency to make it a priority right now. May we be more committed to the kingdom of God today than we were yesterday. Move in our hearts. And Father, as we close, I want to bless this project, Kingdom Assignment Two, here at Cornerstone, and in the other churches in the community that are taking part as well. Father, I ask for an increase of joy in all of us. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us. I pray that you would free us from those things that are keeping us from you. And Father, we also bless the good that you're going to do. We pray for those that right now struggle with their thoughts, their emotions, their feelings. We ask God that you would work. We ask that you would move in their life. We ask that you would use our church and other resources and other churches in town to bring shalom to their heart and mind. Father, I pray that this would be a joy factory. I pray we announce the kingdom. I pray that despair would be pushed back because of what you're doing. But let us start in us. Let it start in our hearts. And then may you use what we bring together. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.